bow our heads. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for revealing to us the simplicity and purity of devotion to your Son, the simplicity even of the faith that you give us by grace, but also that salvation comes at a cost. Thank you for giving us both sides of that coin and letting us understand it, giving us the time in your divine patience so that you can do this good work in each of us as individuals and also as a ministry, as a corporate body, so we might get truth out to a lost and dying world. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for that cross where you sent your son 2,000 years ago to die in our stead. Otherwise, even this evening wouldn't be a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, part 15. Since beginning this series, I've been cognizant of the fact that people have a horrible tendency to become lopsided. I think any time you teach something with some vigor, the tendency for your audience is to become nearsighted and uh, hyper-focused to the point where what you're teaching begins to overshadow all the balance statements in the Bible. And so tonight is another instance of that from the Spirit. For example, go to Matthew 7.13. Matthew 7.13. As you've probably noted by now, even with the change to the schedule, He's maturing you in a certain way. He's teaching you also the method uh, as to how you go about studying the Word of God, even on your own time, that the Bible is full of balance and that you have to have context to what you're reading, else or lest you end up with something false and running along with something false in your soul. Matthew 7.13, though, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, those are red letters, which means we ought to listen up. But they're also very profound. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's sad. To read, but that's the facts. With that passage as part of our launching pad, the Spirit's given us complementary principles, such as this one on the board, relative to discipleship. And again, this is to establish all the sort of forceful language that uh, has been brought to you from this pulpit as of late. Relative to discipleship, then, Jesus demanded that to become a disciple, one must abandon their ties to the self-life, 
They must be willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. The same requirement exists today. Given the fact that the so-called self-life is all a person knows before salvation, well, then there's a lot to consider, isn't there? So we have to weigh the consequences. A person must understand the weightiness of the gospel before they can be saved. They must understand and desire Christ as Lord, not just Savior. True repentance incurs the cost of surrendering the self-life. Luke 14, 27-33. I'll give you Luke 14, 27-28 up here on the board. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? So there's a certain measuring, if you would, or accounting of the cost relative to salvation. These are fundamental aspects, then, of the gospel. Same goes with the aspect of the gospel that we started the series off with, which is that if you're saved, you will bear fruit. So the same emphasis goes with fruit-bearing as a guarantee and godly evidence of one's salvation. If you read your Bible regularly, and I hope, I, I'm not even going to say it. If you're not taking advantage of Tuesday nights, I'm not sure what else I can say, but I hope at least a portion of your schedule now includes some additional reading. If you read your Bible regularly, you will certainly see that these principles are undeniable. Unless a person repents and follows Jesus, they cannot receive saving faith by grace. He's not offering it. Jesus Christ said, I came to save who? Sinners. However, we mustn't forget the simplicity of it at the same time. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but it is not. Here's a fundamental issue, and you need to concentrate on this. And it's just a perspective. He's trying to give you perspective this evening. Things that are difficult for man are not for God. For example, denying self or following Jesus are only difficult due to man's affinity for old things. Think about that. The only difficulty, really, is your attachment to the old life. In the case of the ruler, that person didn't want to give up their old life, so they missed out on salvation even. But we all know that we still have a flesh that very much likes the old life. So the difficulty is not with other things. Rather, it's with denying self or following Jesus. These are where the difficulties come in, and that's a function, if you would, of our affinity to old things. In other words, there's a very real human side to all of this that makes something as simple as salvation, because salvation is not difficult to understand. As far as God's concerned, it's not a difficult concept, and it really isn't. The, the quote, formula of it isn't difficult. 
But there's a very real human side to all of this that makes even something as simple as salvation relatively, with the emphasis on relatively, difficult. But therein lies the truth that said relativity, if you would, is merely a function of humanity. And the Bible speaks that way to us. There are going to be difficulties with denying self. There's going to be challenges when you count the cost. There's going to be those things evidenced even after salvation. There are going to be temptations to leave what you've been given at salvation behind even, to some degree, in favor of what? Idols and other temptations. You name them. God does not and has never, even when all of this was ordained in eternity past, had any problem with the relative ease of salvation. Granted, His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had to count the ultimate cost, physical and spiritual death. But since deity cannot die in any sense of the word, it was the humanity of Christ that suffered in a way that was relatable to mankind. We had a good conversation before class in the kitchen uh, about how we are never going to realize precisely what happened between the Godhead on the cross. It's, we're incapable. That I'm convinced of. Can you describe the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ? Can you describe what happened between Him and think about His deity and God? Can you fully understand what happened there? I can't. I don't dare even try to describe it. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the gift itself was what? Indescribable. I wonder why. So the part of all of that that we can relate to is the human side of Christ. Go to Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. And it's one of the reasons that He came down and humbled Himself so that we would have a high priest that could sympathize with us, that could understand the human condition, the weaknesses that we face as human beings. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. It was Jesus' humanity, and this is where we as humans can relate to what the Spirit's saying here. It was Jesus' humanity that would have posed any difficulty with accepting God's plan for him. God cannot be tempted. But yet it says in Scripture that He was tempted in every way. He just did not what? Sin. Which means He can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with the difficulty. Just read Matthew 4 when you go home tonight. With the difficulty, I mean, we're not going to face Satan most likely. But the difficulty of facing real temptation. Slippery, serpentile-like temptation. And He understood what it means, or what it means for all of us to be tempted. And so in that way, this is how we relate to Him. It was His humanity that said the following under extreme pressure after all. Go to Mark 14.34. Mark 14.34. 
so we're focusing on the human side of Christ here for the moment. Mark 14, 34. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. This isn't the passage, I don't believe, that has him sweating blood. But that's how severe it got. God doesn't sweat blood. Man does. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's a human being calling out to his father. And the temptation, of course, in that moment would have been to what? Quit. But he wouldn't quit. You see, it's the servant that suffers, not the master. In the kenosis, as we know it, and that's just from the Greek word, in the kenosis of Christ, a.k.a., also known as his humility, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, Christ became submissive to the Father. And that is the pattern, which is why God never struggles, as he is the divine master of all. Which is why we have passages to encourage us, such as, go to Mark 10.27. Mark 10.27. And all the Spirit's doing here is putting out some data for you, some review, plus some additional thought. Mark 10.27. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Such is the value, then, of context when certain statements are made regarding counting the cost or suffering for Jesus or denying self and repent. Those kinds of things, they are, and they have a certain human difficulty to them. And that's what the Bible teaches us that although salvation is free and easy, so to speak, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that the judicial aspect of it, as far as God is concerned, is very simple. But the point is, look at the point on the board. Things that are difficult for man are not for God. For example, denying self or following Jesus are only difficult due to man's affinity for old things. For the slave, because of their pre-existing condition, there is a certain cost of discipleship, of laboring for their new master. As Scripture abundantly describes, we are always under the lordship of someone. We are never free in every sense of the word, which is why the term bond slave is used often to describe a believer. Go to 1 Peter 2.16. 1 Peter 2.16. And again, all the Spirit's doing is giving you some data so that you can make this distinction between the difficulty of being human and the simplicity of salvation. 
they almost seem to contradict, but they do not. 1 Peter 2.16 Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. There's your paradox, if you would. It says in the first part of the sentence, act as free men. And in the closing, it says, as bond slaves of God. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction to you? It's not. It's only a contradiction to the person who's not in their Bible studying it out, who earnestly seeks. Seek and you shall what? Find. See, the easy gospel also breeds an easy, quote-unquote, spiritual life that, ah, I'll just hand it all over to God. It's all by grace. I don't have to do any. There's no work. There's no labor. Slave what? Do loss who? I'll just do this. I'll just sin like crazy. Right? Give me some religion, some protocol that, you know, that I can sleep at night, I guess. Then that has nothing to do with truth. Anyone think, um, what do you think of the verse um, that says if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you? Anybody been persecuted this week? I got persecuted this afternoon. I kid you not. Email. (laughs) How do you say it? There are legal ramifications because you ripped off my website. Domain name. Huh? For an elder sponsor. What? Someone's trying to tell me I ripped them off and they're now challenging with, what, legal language. I'm saying this is ridiculous. Try to help some old people with the love of Christ and now I get some moron. So anybody else have a good start? Anybody else want to say that you're not persecuted? So we ought to act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So you have this dichotomy, this sort of paradox, where lopsided ministries will teach freedom, 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 grace. And the other one's like, judgment, 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 bond slaves. But you have to be balanced. You have to figure that thing out. You have to reconcile. I'm going to do everything I can with the time allotted to me to teach you, to guide you to truth. But at the end of the day, you have to reconcile 1 Peter 2.16 in your soul. It's not a difficult passage, but it's an important one. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Bond slaves comes from that word doulos, that Greek word doulos, which is translated slave, bond servant, servant, etc. And what does a bond slave do after all? If the spiritual life is just, you know, and even the consideration of the gospel is just, eh, what do you got free for me? Let me reach my hand into the basket of called grace that's labeled grace. I'll pluck what I want. I'll do a little check mark and I'll run away and go back to my life. Does that sound like the Word of God? What do bond slaves do? You know what they do? By definition, they serve their master. That's why Jesus Christ said in his parable, the ten mine is, do business. 
with what I give you. I'll give some of you, you know, a hundred bucks, some of you a thousand bucks. This is in figurative terms. Some of you a million dollars. I'll allow each of you a measure of faith. I'll put some of you in that condition, some of you in that condition, some of you in that condition. Go. Go. Do business. Who got in trouble? The guy who buried the, the miner in the backyard, right? The one who did nothing with their life. So bond slaves serve. They labor for their master. Even Jesus implied a work ethic that precluded a person giving the details of life any precedence over him. Go to Luke 9.59. Luke 9.59. Jesus implied a work ethic that precluded a person giving details of life any precedence over him. He says, you're mine now. Think about it. You're mine now. A master has ownership over their slaves, does he not? Well, what if the slave says, but I'm going to go over here and work for this master, my old master, because I like them. And all that time off that's meant to be working for your new master is now working for the old master. How's your new master going to feel about that? How's your job, how's your boss at work going to feel about that when you go to your competition, because you used to work there, and go put a few hours in for them? No big deal, no big deal. I'll make it up on the weekend. But I sold a couple of million dollar accounts because I'm buddies with them, you know, this kind of thing. How's your new master going to feel about that? How's your new boss going to feel about that? Luke 9.59, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. In other words, I want you to be laboring for me. You're mine now. Forget about that stuff. Let the dead bury the dead. You're mine now. I'm telling you, go proclaim the gospel. And that's what? Work. And that's what a slave does. They work for their master. Verse 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but... Sounds like some of you, probably. But... But, you know, ah, yeah, I'll totally work hard. I'll work extra hard next Tuesday. But this Tuesday, it's the finals of, you pick your sport, it's ridiculous. It's the finals of so-and-so, and I got this invite, and I can't let down my friend because I RSVP'd like a month ago, you know, before the spirit. But, everybody's got a but, and I don't mean... A derriere. I mean, with one T. Everybody's got a butt. But! You don't understand. You, you just live in a cave. You just stand behind here all pompous and tell people, you know, to live the spiritual life when you live in a cave. You don't have a job. Oh, yeah. You're so right. I'm sure God loves your little butt. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Plowing? Don't believe me? Go check out a mule in the sun. 
Go check out a farmer, even, that's holding the plow. Plowing implies what? Labor. But only for the servant, you see, not for the master, who in this case is God. Hence, Jesus' counsel to his disciples on the subject. And again, what the Spirit's doing here is making the distinction on the board. It's just perspective, folks. Things that are difficult for man are not for God. For example, denying self or following Jesus are only difficult due to man's affinity for old things. What does Jesus say about his commands? What's the Word of God say about his commands? My commands are not burdensome. In other words, there's a certain joy set before you when you do put your hand to the plow, if you really have, in actually doing that good labor for the Lord. It's not, oh, oh man, i got to go evangelize somebody. I should be out there, what, handing out the Great Commission, working on the... Yeah, and you should love it. And if you don't, that's between you and the Lord. What's he been teaching now for two months? Go to Mark 10.43. Mark 10.43. You know, these things, the spiritual life and all the things we complain about and, you know, this and that, um, they're only really truthfully difficult because of the manward side of things. Mark 10.43. But it is not this way among you, But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is our prototype after all. He did humble himself to become like us. He can sympathize with us. We just saw it in Hebrews Therefore, the very prospect of the gospel includes slavery. The very prospect of the gospel includes slavery. We are indeed freed from the slavery of sin. However, we are enslaved to a new master when saved. We are free. You see, when he says, like in 1 Peter, you're free, act like free men. Yeah, free from sin. But you're also a bond slave, which means you've been enslaved to God. That's the way it goes. You're always a slave. Romans 6. So we are indeed freed from the slavery of sin. However, we are enslaved to a new master when saved. However... All of that really is how man sees things as difficult. And the difficulty really is a function of his affinity for the old life. What's interesting is that Jesus himself chooses to use human language and relation to encourage those who do choose to put their hand to the plow. And just as a side note, I was thinking about this. The I like to think of them as the hyper-grace crowd. They get a little bit licentious. The hyper-grace crowd will try and convince you that slavery is somehow without cost. 
that once you're saved, that's it. I mean, it's up to you. You want, you know, you want Jesus as Lord? It's up to you. You want him as Lord and Savior? Not just Savior? Well, that's your choice. But that's not what Jesus said at all. He said, I'm Lord. And if you follow me, you're going to follow me. If you put your hand to the plow and you keep looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom. So the hypergrace crowd will try and convince you that slavery is without cost, but that ignores Jesus' own evangelism. Go to Matthew 11.28. Matthew 11.28. Matthew 11.28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Okay, that means take on my system, if you would, of slavery. I will be your master. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's a little perspective so far in the lesson, the salvation gospel perspective, while free in Christ, you can read Galatians 5 for that, we must finish the sentence. How often does that come up? Finish the sentence. It doesn't mean free from all slavery and related duties of a doulos, a bond slave. Rather, it means free from sin and enslaved to God, that should say enslaved to God. Free from sin and enslaved to God. Again, while free in Christ, we must finish the sentence. It doesn't mean free from all slavery. You'd think that's what some people would say. Woo, I'm free. You mean I get all these presents and gifts and I just go blow it on everything? I don't care if I'm running right over the top of you. I don't care if I ever give the gospel. I don't care if I ever save a soul, so to speak. If I ever win a soul, probably more accurate to say it that way. I don't give it. This is all about me. I never gave up the self-life. I just did this. Mm -hmm. I found the easiest gospel I could possibly find and stuck with that one. Well, what's the Spirit been saying on that topic? You might not even be saved. You might have a bigger problem. But that's between you and the Lord. We must finish the sentence. It doesn't mean free from all slavery and all related duties of a doulos, a bond slave. Rather, it means free from sin, from the dominion, the sovereignty of sin. How shall we still live in it who have died to it, right? Like Paul says. And enslaved to God, Romans 6, 1 Peter 2, 16. And I think this is where people get confused. They forget, maybe on purpose, that a yoke implies slavery. Tell that to an ox, that you're not doing work for the farmer. They forget that a yoke implies slavery, and slavery implies servanthood, and servanthood implies labor. A little more perspective on that. 
My yoke is easy, from Matthew 11.30, implies a scale. Therefore, though easy, there's still work commanded of the slave. And that's a consideration, an upfront consideration regarding the gospel. So my yoke is easy implies a scale. Easy, look, easy, medium, hard. They're all on the same scale of what? Work. Just because it's easy doesn't mean there's not a scale. The fact that it's easy means there's a scale. If there wasn't a scale, he would have chosen different words. My yoke is easy implies a scale. Therefore, though easy, there's still work commanded of the slave. And you can add in there, my grace is sufficient for you. That's how it's easy. Because when you're trying to plow a field with the flesh, you're going to run out of energy. You're not going to be equipped to do that good work. That's what religious people run into. Unsaved people who are playing pretend, who eventually fall away or are choked out. Why? Why are they choked out? Why do they fall away? You know why? Because they don't have the strength or the energy. They don't have grace. They don't have faith to pull it off. They don't have the power of God to do it. And in that sense, it's very difficult. My yoke is easy implies a scale, therefore, though easy, there's still work commanded of the slave. If or it's undeniable that there are practical aspects to being saved that are very real considerations for man before and after salvation. That makes total sense since salvation implies a complete change of heart and therefore direction. You're not going to change your entire direction. I could, I could bring up someone right, that's very dear to me right now, right up now, and, and they would probably, if I made them talk about it, would probably weep in front of you at the torture they've been going through because of their family. Jesus Christ has changed their heart and therefore the very direction of their life. And their family doesn't like it. And so their family has been persecuting them regularly and even openly. So there is a certain sense of a cost associated. Is that person making it through by the grace of God? You bet. They would probably tell you in tears that they are. And in that sense, for as long as they cast all their anxieties on Christ, on Him, they're okay. And in that sense, being yoked with Christ is a very good thing. But salvation implies a complete change of heart and therefore direction. However, this piece of biblical doctrine exists simultaneously with Paul's discourse to the Ephesians, who he was encouraging with the facts about the judicial side of salvation. I think this is where people get goofed up. They say, well, it's so easy for God. Yeah, but it's not for you. God's the master. You're the slave. So don't take judicial facts Don't take things in context that are meant to describe the judicial aspects of salvation and make that the gospel, because it's not. And that's the great error that a lot of folks that peddle the gospel make. They say, see, look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Look how simple it is. See that? There's no counting cost. There's no slavery. There's no nothing. It's all by grace. Woo, isn't that fun? Let's go back and raise hell. 
There's no counting the cost whatsoever. Because the humanity, the sin life has never been challenged with something so weak. The gospel is not just, in other words, the judicial aspects of salvation, but they are critically important, obviously, to understand. But you have to keep context, folks, when you read the Bible. So again, the doctrines exist simultaneously, the ones we've talked about already, with Paul's discourse to the Ephesians, who he was encouraging with the facts about the judicial side of salvation, something that man has zero to do with in terms of labor. Go to Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1. Now, when you talk about the actual judicial side of salvation, you are absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. You have nothing to do with the labor involved in dropping that gavel. Ephesians 2.1. So Paul's speaking about something different here. You didn't see Jesus Christ talking about these details, did you? No. He said, here I am. I'm the Messiah. Drop all that and follow me. You see, the apostles were consistently having to defend the gospel against all kinds of errors, all kinds of false teachers, all kinds of people that say, oh, no, that's not how you're justified. You're justified by works. Who do you think he's talking about here? Who do you think he's always defending against? The Judaizers. Oh, it's justification by works. Paul's like, it's not justification by works. This is the truth about justification. But this is the judicial aspects of things. It doesn't mean you just all of a sudden say, gospel of Jesus? <laughs> Paul says it's such easy. If I just go with like what Paul says here, this is way easier. I don't even have to learn about the Bible. I don't have to know anything. But that's the big error. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. That's a condition, folks, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. No work yet so far on your behalf, right? All you have to do is what? Believe. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what? Though, finish the sentence. For what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would what? Walk in them. In this sense, Paul is speaking of the sin issue directly, not the very practical aspects of denying self or of repentance specifically. 
why people that like to just focus and say the gospel is just a judicial thing, the word repentance is thrown out. Matter of fact, they'll take all of the red letters in your Bible and throw them out. And say, oh, that was for a different dispensation. That was like some other dispensation. Really? Really? Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, was for a different dispensation. Follow me. It was for a different dispensation. The very first word out of Jesus' public ministry, what was it? Repent. That's not for me. Why? Because Paul was doing a good work in defending something and presenting the judicial aspects of saving faith in Ephesians, so I get to discount everything else. What do you think God thinks about all that? I think he's appalled. So in this sense, Paul is speaking of the sin issue directly, not the very practical aspects of denying self or of repentance specifically. The judicial aspects of salvation are actually void of any slave labor. There's no mention of those things. Why? Because that's not what's being taught at that point. Context. Context. With text. That's what it means. Get your context down. If you don't have context, what have we learned? Come on. What have we learned about not reading our Bibles and getting context? What do we do? What are we famous for? We make doctrines out of slivers of Scripture. Whole doctrines. And then we live our lives against these slivers of Scripture that are completely, what? Lopsided. And if you're not willing to take in our Lord and Savior's words, you have a big problem. So context matters. The judicial aspects of salvation are, when spoken of, when written about in the Bible, are actually void of any real notion of slave labor. So where's the distinction up here on the board? You say, well, then what is my labor? Learning is labor. How about that? How about doing what you're doing right now? You say, but I don't feel like I'm ever doing anything for God. You are. This is how he works. You ready for this? This is why we're not political activists. You ready? He changes people from the inside out. How about that? How about you don't even have to worry about what it is you're going to do a year from now. How you're going to glorify God a year from now in that pathetic, wretched, decaying body of yours. Sorry. Sorry. You don't have to worry about that. You know what he's trying to do? He's saying, listen, your, your primary labor is to learn. Which is why you're, if you're a lazy learner, your spiritual life goes... Which is why most of you will attest. You probably know people that have gone like this in the spiritual life. Why is that? They're humble and they learn. And then they humble some more and they keep on learning. And then they keep on learning. And then they keep on learning. And when they used to be this wretched jackass, now they're bringing glory to God in ways that even they can't comprehend. How'd that happen? The labor of learning. 
God says what in Philippians 1.6? I'll complete a good work in you. My grace is sufficient for you. Just keep on learning. Why do you think the ball guy's like a broken, stinking wrecking? Read your Bibles! Seriously! Read the blogs! I got people in that still don't read the blog. I'm like, are you insane? I counted the last blog I had, had 13 verses, passages. One blog! 13 passages! And if you're not reading the blogs, you're missing out on 13 passages within the tapestry of a blog. And then you wonder why you're a miserable crank. You wonder why. And you think the ball guy's just some kind of a fanatic. Call me what you will, but I know what it takes. Learning is labor. Faith is never something we work for. It is a gift. It saves us at salvation and sanctifies us afterwards. But it's a gift. You don't say, I'm going to set out and I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to read my Bible. It's way too much work. I don't want to be a bond slave, a doulos, whatever that guy keeps talking about. I don't want to actually be that slave. I want to just human strength. Mm. I'm going to have faith. Mm. I'm going to listen to Caleb. No, I'm going to listen to Caleb on 11, because that's what our amps go up to. Nobody. I'm going to listen to Caleb on 11. And I'm just going to will faith into my life. And I'm going to completely disregard what, that, what the Spirit's saying through that spiritual gift, that one that stands behind the pulpit, that guy, that shepherd guy. What's he know? He's just some fanatic. Look at him. Okay. It seems the real work for man is in learning to receive it by grace. Okay. You get your hand out for donations from the world over here. How can your hands be over here? If you're too busy taking handouts from the world, if your cup is filleth up from the garbage from the world, how's God got any place for grace? So in other words, to follow Christ, to receive grace, means fill my cup. But the cup has to be empty. And if by the time you come to church, or by the time it's time to read a blog, or by the time Tuesday evenings come around and there's no church anymore, and your cup's full from a day of disgustingness, you got no room left, do you? All you got left is reruns of rerun. Remember him? What's happening? That's it. That's the right program, Anthony? And he's like, yeah. TiVo. If your cup is already filled, I'm going to tell you something. That person isn't even interested in grace. They're not. They're interested in the self-life, which takes us all the way back to the last two months of lessons. Because if that's your life and that's your intention and that's your direction, you, my friend, have a serious problem. One that could actually run up against your own salvation. Maybe your heart hasn't been changed. I don't know. But there have been serious questions raised. Amen? 
So again, faith is never something we work for. It is a gift. It saves us at salvation and sanctifies us afterwards. In other words, the thing that does all the work, the thing with all the power, you know, pistis, faith, is a gift. It seems the real work for man then is learning to receive it by grace. Faith by itself is very simple. We just saw that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let me give you a bit of something. You can go ahead and uh, yeah, close your Bibles. Relax, sit back. I'm going to close with this, I guess. Let me give you a bit of something from Charles Spurgeon. I got from a document he wrote titled Around the Wicked Gate. And the subtitle is Faith Very Simple. He says this, To many, faith seems a hard thing. The truth is, it is only hard because it is easy. <laughs> That's why I love this guy. He's a beautiful perspective on many, many things. To many, faith seems a hard thing. The truth is, it's only hard because it is easy. He goes on, People think that salvation must be the result of some act or feeling very mysterious and very difficult. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are His ways our ways, Isaiah 55 eight. In order that the feeblest and the most ignorant may be saved, He has made the way of salvation as easy as the A, B, C. There is nothing about it to puzzle anyone. Only as everybody expects to be puzzled by it, many are quite bewildered when they find it to be so exceedingly simple. The fact is, we do not believe that God means what He is saying. <laughs> we act as if it could not be true. He says, I have heard of a Sunday school teacher who performed an experiment which I do not think I shall ever try with children, for it might turn out to be a very expensive one. Indeed, I feel sure that the result in my case would be very different from what I now describe. This teacher had been trying to illustrate what faith was, and as he could not get it into the minds of his boys, he took his watch and said, now, I will give you this watch, John. Will you have it? John fell thinking what the teacher could mean and did not seize the treasure but made no answer. The teacher said to the next boy, Henry, here is the watch. You have it? Will you have it? The boy with a very proper modesty replied, No, thank you, sir. The teacher tried several of the boys with the same result till, at last, the youngster, who was not so wise or so thoughtful as the others, but rather more believing, said in the most natural way, Thank you, sir, and put the watch into his pocket. <laughs> then the other boys woke up to a startling fact. Their companion had received a watch which they had refused. One of the boys quickly asked of the teacher, Is he to keep it? Of course he is, said the teacher. I offered it to him, and he accepted it. 
I would not give a thing and take it away. That would be very foolish. I put the watch before you and said that I gave it to you, but none of you would have it. Oh, said the boy, if I had known you meant it, I would have had it. Of course he would. He thought it was a piece of acting and nothing more. All the other boys were in a dreadful state of mind to think that they had lost the watch. Each one cried, Teacher, I did not know you meant it, but I thought... No one took the gift, but everyone thought. Each one had his theory, except the simple-minded boy who believed what he was told and got the watch. Now, I wish that I could always be such a simple child as literally to believe what the Lord says and take what he puts before me, resting quite content that he is not playing with me and that I cannot be wrong in accepting what he sets before me in the gospel. Happy should we be if we would trust and raise no questions of any sort but alas, we will get thinking and doubting. Sounds like human rationalism, doesn't it? When the Lord uplifts his dear son before a sinner, that sinner should take him without hesitation. If you take him, you have him, and none can take him from you. Out with your hand, man, and take him at once. When inquirers accept the Bible as literally true, and see that Jesus is really given to all who trust Him. All the difficulty about understanding the way of salvation vanishes like the morning's frost at the rising of the sun. Faith will not long seem a difficulty to you, nor ought it to be so, for it is simple. Faith is trusting, trusting wholly upon the person, work, merit, and power of the Son of God. Some think this trusting is a romantic business, but indeed it is the simplest thing that can possibly be. To some of us, truths which were once hard to believe are now matters of fact, which we should find it hard to doubt. If one of our great-grandfathers were to rise from the dead, ooh, that'd be creepy, and come into the... <laughs> And come into the present, they weren't that good looking when they were alive. And come into the present state of things, what a deal of trusting he would have to do. Think about that. Your great grandfather came back right now. What a great deal of trusting he would have to do. He would say tomorrow morning, Where are the flint and steel? I want a light. And we should give him a little box with tiny pieces of wood in it and tell him to strike one of them on the box. He would have to trust a good deal before he would believe that fire would thus be produced. We next would say to him, Now that you have seen a light, turn that tap and light the gas. He sees nothing. How can light come through an invisible vapor? And yet it does. Come with us, grandfather. Sit in that chair. Look at that box in front of you. You shall have your likeness directly. No, child, he would say, it is ridiculous. The sun take my portrait? I cannot believe it. Yes, and you shall ride 50 miles in an hour without horses. 
He will not believe it till we get him into the train. My dear sir, you shall speak to your son in New York, and he shall answer you in a few minutes. Should we not astonish the old gentleman? Would he not want all his faith? Yet these things are believed by us without effort, because experience has made us familiar with them. Faith is greatly needed by you, who are strangers to spiritual things. You seem lost while we are talking about them, but oh, how simple it is to us who have the new life and have communion with spiritual realities. We have a Father to whom we speak, and He hears us, and a blessed Savior who hears our heart's longings and helps us in our struggles against sin. It is all plain to Him that understands. May it now be plain to you. So hopefully this evening, I'm out of time, I had more, but uh, hopefully this evening gave you a nice set of balance. The words of Jesus Christ to what we just closed with. There's a certain difficulty, there's a certain cost in the salvation, a measured cost, but it's also, there's a certain simplicity at salvation and even afterwards. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.